Second Kings chapter four. Welcome to you who've joined us in person online. Those who will be watching later. Sister Elizabeth told me it's mowing season, so she's been catching up on some of the lessons with her earbuds on while she's mowing. And I suggested it was a great way to avoid the destructive hum of the mower and weed eater as it pounds on our eardrums and let God's word do it instead. Moving on from the story of Elisha and the Shunammite woman, we're now looking at the dearth, the famine that's in the land of Israel. And this was not only an earthly famine, as we read immediately in the text, but there was a spiritual famine, and that was the greater problem then, just like it is now, just like it was in the days of Noah. It's the same. And that spiritual famine led to that earthly famine, and we learned the principle in Leviticus 26 that we've kept going back to, where God promised that if they would walk in his statutes and commandments and do them, then he would give them rain when it's due, and the land would yield her increase, and the trees would yield their fruit, and they would have plenty to eat and dwell safely in their land. Well, they're not dwelling safely right now. They have a dearth in the land, a famine. Now let's reread verse 38, 2 Kings chapter 4, verse 38. And Elisha came again to Gilgal, and there was a dearth in the land, and the sons of the prophets were sitting before him. And he said unto his servants, Set on the great pot, and seethe pottage for the sons of the prophets. So Elisha, up to this point, has commanded that the big stew pot be brought out. And he is about to teach an object lesson to the sons of the prophets, and even better, to us. Verse 39 is the new part of our study. And one went out into the field to gather herbs and found a wild vine and gathered thereof wild gourds, his lap full, and came and shred them into the pot of pottage, for they knew them not. You know, I don't usually title my Sunday school lessons, but a great title for this one would be Wild Gourds on a Wild Vine. In case you have to have a title, if you're OCD and you need a title, there you go. Wild gourds on a wild vine. For the rest of us, it's 2 Kings chapter 4, verse 39. Now, these were not garden-grown gourds like some of you may be growing even now. A good quality cucumber or watermelons, which I look forward to soon. But these were wild gourds. And... The word for wild is also translated as the word field. So if you can imagine going out into a field and coming across a vine just running across the ground in the sand or the dirt and it having some sort of gourd on it, that's the, the imagery here. That's what this man found was these wild gourds, field gourds. And after all, what else can a wild vine produce but wild gourds? And what else can come forth from a bitter fountain but bitter water and not sweet? This verse tells us that the gourd picker gathered thereof. He gathered thereof. So when he found this wild vine, he took the wild gourds from that wild vine. Now that sounds simple enough, doesn't it? He didn't just find a wild vine and then walk past it. He gathered thereof from that wild vine. 
And it said in the middle of verse 39, he gathered thereof wild gourds, his lap full. Now, some of the kids may not, or if you're just a city slicker, you may not know this, but I think most of the folks in here are country folks or have been, and you've certainly had a garden regardless of your status as a country or city dweller. And having a lap full, imagine having a cloak or an apron and filling it with gourds and carrying it. That's a bunch of gourds. One of my fondest childhood memories involved shelling peas with my grandmother and her sisters, who were my great aunts. Now, they wore aprons, and I wore a T-shirt, and I was a little boy. But before we could shell the peas, we had to gather them from the pea vines in the garden first. And I'd pick a few peas and put them in my shirt. I'd have my T-shirt out like that, and then I'd take it over to the big wash tub and dump them in there and go back and pick some more. But my grandmother and her sisters had aprons, and they could hold a lot of peas in that apron, and they did it like this. Hold that apron like this and put those peas in there, and then they'd carry those peas over to the wash tub, and they could dump a bunch of them in there. And I had to make a lot of trips, didn't I? My T-shirt wasn't as big as their aprons. So when they got a lap full, that was a lot of peas. And that's the image of this gourd picker in his lap full of gourds. And it says in verse 39 that when he brought those back, he shred them into the pot of pottage. This is what you do, by the way, to get your little ones to eat vegetables they don't like. We confessed our secret to Sarah, now that all of our children have grown, that we would shred vegetables and put them in the soup, and she never knew they were there. She was pretty discerning, even at a young age. We would hide uh, green peas in those fish sticks. We'd cut the fish sticks in half and stuff a green pea in there, and then turn the, the business end around and and put it in her mouth. But one day she looked around at the other end, she saw a pea, and we had to change our methods. So that's what you do when you want to put something in the in the stew. You shred that, and that's what this man did. Pottage, by the way, stew is a perfectly acceptable meal. It was then and it is now. Everyone liked pottage, kind of like we like stew around here. If you don't like stew, you just hadn't had the right kind yet. You hadn't had what my wife makes. It's wonderful, and I think it would change your mind. But only certain things can be put in the stew for it to taste good. Now, you can put anything you want in the stew, but it's not going to taste good if you put everything in the stew. If you put a pound of sugar in your stew, it's going to ruin it. If you dump a bag of lemons in your stew, it's not going to taste like stew anymore. It'll ruin the taste. In fact, we could summarize that by saying, we who know stew know when something doesn't belong in there. And we know what does belong in there. Now, I want you to look at this pot of stew as a pot of doctrine. And these gourds, these wild gourds are false doctrine. Because I believe that's the picture that's painted for us here. That's the object lesson. And look back in the text at the very end of verse 39. 
It says, for they knew them not. For they knew them not. The sons of the prophets, that's who they are. The sons of the prophets did not know what those wild gourds were. They didn't realize that wild gourds had been put in their pot of stew. They knew something was put in there, but they didn't know they were wild. They didn't know they were bad. And religious leaders, like the sons of the prophets here, will say outwardly they love God. That's what the Pharisees did. And they usually have Bibles lying around somewhere, maybe even on their pulpits like we do. And they often quote from the Bible. You know, the Bible is a pot of good doctrine all the way through. But these same preachers, like the sons of the prophets did in Israel, allow wild gourds to be dumped into the stew when they teach things like the tolerance of sin and affirmation of perverted lifestyles, or perhaps they preach that everyone's going to be saved no matter what their religion is, and so on and so on. And a mistake that many people make today is that of listening to and even heeding the words of these gifted speakers who stand in the pulpits on Sunday morning when these speakers have taken their doctrine from a wild vine and that poor listener who usually doesn't know his or her Bible very well, if at all, that poor listener is deluded into thinking this preacher is going to be bring good doctrine, even though he's trying to bring it from a wild vine. That somehow that preacher, as we saw on uh, Facebook here about a month or two ago, one of the churches in this area, I think it may have been in Kaufman County, was going to take Disney movie characters and teach Bible lessons with it. Somehow take a Disney movie and turn it into a spiritual lesson. Why would you need to do that? What comes from wild vines? Wild gourds, just like our text says. Now here's another thing to consider Neither the gourd picker nor the sons of the prophets knew that these gourds were wild in the sense that they were no good. Why, there's some gourds. I'll just put them in the stew. I've seen people put gourds in the stew before, maybe cut up some squash or something like that. I'll put these. These will be the same. They look just like it. If I had a pot of stew going and somebody brought me some kind of vegetable, and they didn't know what it was, and I didn't know what it was, you know what I'd say? Now listen, I don't know if that's good or not, but I'm not certain that it is, so let's not put that in the pot. How's that? I know what belongs in the stew pot, because I've made stew before. And that doesn't belong in it. Now it may be fine, but I don't know that it is, so I'm not going to put it in there. I don't want to allow my willful ignorance to excuse me putting bad doctrine in a message. I don't want to say, you know, I heard old preacher so-and-so say that, and it sounds pretty good, and I haven't looked it up to see if that's what the Bible says, but he's a good preacher. He's a good man, and I'm just going to repeat what he says. You know, a religious leader may say, I I didn't know the gourds were wild. 
So it wasn't that he intentionally preached bad doctrine, but he did so ignorantly. And that's one reason we don't put a novice in the pulpit. He's lifted up with pride, and what happens? He falls into the condemnation of the devil, just like the Apostle Paul warned Timothy. And we particularly don't put one in the pulpit, whether he be a novice or not, when he's not cautious about learning what God says about a matter. That's the first place I'm going to go. If you ask me a question, Brother Andy, I want to know what do you think God's will is for me about this decision or that. I'm going to go to the Bible. And if I can't find it in the Bible, then you're going to have to figure it out on your own. But I'll bet you I can find, if if not the actual prohibition or the principle, I can find the precept in there that will guide you. And I'm comfortable giving you that. But I want to learn what God says about a matter. I don't want wild gourds coming out of my mouth, out of my teaching. And it says now in verse 40, look back in your text, So they poured out for the men to eat. And it came to pass as they were eating of the pottage that they cried out and said, O thou man of God, there is death in the pot. And they could not eat thereof. You know, I just noticed something, how they blamed the man of God. Who was it that put the wild gourds in the stew? It was that man who went out and picked them and shredded them and put them in the stew. It doesn't say that Elisha put them in there. He allowed them to be put in there. But it doesn't say he put them in there. But boy, they were sure quick to say, man of God, there's death in the pot. So they poured out for the men to eat. Now let's look at that. Being ignorant of the bad doctrine in the stew, the false teacher, the false preacher, or even ignorant preacher, pours it out for you in the form of a sermon or a Sunday school lesson, or maybe a devotional. And you may, maybe you receive in the mail those daily bread devotionals or other types of devotionals, or you have an online or an app on your phone that gives you your daily devotional. Let me tell you, God's Word's always good, but be real careful about believing what people say about those devotionals, because you can be led astray so quickly by what someone says about a Bible verse without giving any context. And the nature of devotionals is that they're very short. They're kind of something for you to read at breakfast or before you go to work or on a break. They're not usually an in-depth Bible study. So be very careful. Or perhaps such a preacher or teacher will write a best-selling book. And in doing that, whether he's preaching to you, sending you a devotional, or you're reading a book, He's pouring something out for you to eat, for you to take in, to remember, and even to live by. From time to time, I've studied for a lesson and perhaps hastily arrived at a conclusion that I intended to teach, something I thought, now that sounds good. And then by God's grace, in my study, he showed me through his word that I had put a wild gourd in the pot, that I was wrong. But I had not yet poured it out for men to eat. I was still in my study. I could wad that piece of paper up that had the notes and my error on it and throw it in the trash can and pour out the tainted pottage and start over. In fact... 
I'll confess in my teaching ministry, particularly in my early years, I put a few wild gourds in the stew. I did it ignorantly. I would never try to hurt somebody or poison their mind, particularly when I'm teaching them the Bible. I did it out of ignorance. And I wish I could find all those people and remember where I steered them wrong on a passage of Scripture or on a doctrine so I could make it right, but I can't. I can't find them all. But God's been gracious enough to help me grow in His Word and in the ability to teach it properly and to study it properly. And one of the biggest helps has been going from topical teaching to verse-by-verse teaching. Made all the difference for me. When I begin with God's Word rather than with a topic, it makes it so much easier to keep the wild gourds of bad doctrine out of the stew. Now look back in the text again toward the end, and the the men cried out, Oh, thou man of God, there is death in the pot. Now we might say, Yuck, that stew is no good. It's ruined. And make all these spitting noises, trying to get the taste out of our mouth, and maybe eat some bread to get rid of it. It's the way peanut butter tastes to me now that I had COVID back in October. It ruined my taste for peanut butter, and I'm... I'm grieved deeply over that. I love peanut butter. Not anymore. But there's death in the peanut butter jar. It says there's death in the pot. I was sharing with Brother Fulton last week and uh, mentioned to you, I've, I've heard sermons preached on this part of this verse, just this part of the verse, where a preacher will have a literal pot in front of the church and He'll throw some items in there. He'll throw cigarettes in there and say, oh, there's death in the pot. He'll throw maybe a liquor bottle in there. Oh, there's death in the pot. And there's a place to teach all of those. I'm not real sure that I've seen that in the passage that I'm teaching today. So I'd rather just try to take what the text says and show you how the Bible leaves us clues as to what it means and not interject too much into it that's outside of of what's here before us. There's enough here, by the way, without me adding other things into it that aren't here. And for Israel and these sons of the prophets, a pot of good doctrine had been given to them by God himself. And what was it? The statutes and commandments of the Lord. That was good stuff. There wasn't a shred of a wild gourd anywhere in that pot of doctrine. But over time in Israel and Judah those wild vines of unbelief had grown wild gourds of man's tradition and those wild gourds had been shredded and put into the pot of good doctrine. And in this object lesson, God taught them at least two things. Number one, you sons of the prophets have eaten and caused Israel to eat this bad doctrine by mixing it with God's Word. And number two, just as you sons of the prophets told Elisha, there is death in the pot and you could not eat thereof, then you need to repent and not eat of the world's doctrine anymore, which is what caused the death in the pot in the first place. Going back to the making of stew, How could the sons of the prophets 
avoid eating wild gourds? How could they keep from doing that? Well, number one, and this is number one, in order, by recognizing that they were wild. If just one of those sons of the prophets, even the gourd picker himself, but at least the sons of the prophets, the religious leaders of that day would have said, hey, 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 wait a minute now, <laughs> fella, where'd you get those? Well, I just, I found them out there in a the field. They look good. They're pretty. I, I've seen things like this put in stew before. I figured this would be just fine. And if that son of the prophet would have said, do not put that in the stew. If just one prophet would have done that, then we wouldn't have had the rest of that story written the way it was. So by recognizing they were wild, you have to know the good from the bad when it comes to doctrine. And number two, by forbidding them from putting the bad gourds in the stew. We keep bad doctrine out of our church two ways. One, by recognizing it, and two, by forbidding it from being taught. That's it. That's a real simple recipe. And if every church followed that, just like Israel should have followed it, they knew what the good doctrine was, the statutes and commandments of the Lord. And anything that didn't line up with that was a wild gourd. They knew that. God gave them. He said, you're a, you're a separate people. You're a peculiar people. This is what you obey, and I'll give you all of these things. And if you don't, then I won't, and I'm going to give you some bad stuff. So they knew, but they still put it in the pot. As in the days before King Josiah was on the throne, Nelda remembers the book of Jeremiah very well as we were in it for a length of days. And as in the days before King Josiah, the Word of God was not being studied and taught in its purity. For many moons, they didn't even know where the book of the law was until under King Josiah it was located, and he commanded that it be read in the ears of the people. And that's the way it was here in Elisha's day. The spiritual dearth, the famine of the Word of God being taught and lived by led to an earthly famine, the one we're reading about. Not so different from what our world is experiencing today, and it's going to get worse. And I'm not happy that it's going to get worse, but I'm also not surprised. So let's make sure our pot of stew is filled with only good doctrine, no wild gourds. And you may say, well, that's y'all's responsibility, Brother Andy, to teach it. And it is. But you know who else's responsibility it is? It's yours. To receive none other than that which is taught from God's Word. Be discerning. Don't be naive and just accept anything that someone says is Christian literature as biblical. Because in many cases, it's not. Or even worse, it's, it's a mixture. You say, oh, I, I do believe that. Now, that's Bible. That's The Bible says that. And the very next statement is something the Bible doesn't say. It's a wild gourd laying right in there among the good doctrine. Now, let's look at verse 41. So now they've told Elisha there's death in the pot. They couldn't eat thereof, so they're probably looking at him, trying to rinse their mouth out, mouths out. 
Verse 41, but he said, that is Elisha said, then bring meal. And he cast it into the pot and he said, pour out for the people that they may eat. And there was no harm in the pot. So what do you do for people who have eaten wild gourds? The bad doctrine. Well, the first thing you do is what they did at the end of verse 40. Stop eating it. Don't eat any more of it. It said they could not eat thereof. So if you're, and I'm speaking to probably people on the internet right now because the rest of you are here. The ones that are here are here. But the ones who are watching on the internet or who may look at this later on, if you're in a church, whether you're online or you're going to it in person, however you attend it, that is teaching bad doctrine, I have Bible right here that says you cannot eat thereof. You must stop. There's death in the pot. Stop eating. Stop going there. If you have a preacher who says that there is a way to be saved other than through what Jesus has accomplished on the cross for you, whether there's something added to it, whether there's something that takes its place, whether there's something that you have to do yourself and repeat it over and over again, stop eating it. So that's the first thing. You can't keep eating bad doctrine and expect for us to be able to help you as much as if you'll stop eating the bad doctrine. Now, this word meal in our text is also translated as the word flour. But why meal? Why flour? Why would Elisha say, bring me some flour? Well, consider that God has used salt to bring forth water out of a dry well. Now, what do we know about salt? We throw it out there in form of a salt block in a field and the cows lick it. And then what are they going to do after that? They're going to come to the water trough. They're going to drink water. And that's what we want them to do. But salt itself is not the first thing I would think of to throw in a dry well to bring forth water. And flour is not the first thing that we would think of to put in rotten stew to make it taste better. You know, it wasn't the meal, the flour itself, that had those properties that would reverse the poisonous effect of the stew. It was God who would empower this flour to fix what man had messed up. That's what it was. You all remember the hour of power, Robert Schuler. I think it's still on. It's over 50 years he's been preaching and having that show, the hour of power. Well, this is the empower the flower hour with Elisha. How's that? If that if you don't remember anything else, would you remember that? But also remember what that flower represents. In in Judges chapter six, Gideon used meal or flour to make bread. And he served it with some goat meat to the angel of the Lord. And the evidence that the angel of the Lord in that chapter is the Lord Jesus Christ is about as strong as I've ever seen. Because he said, and the Lord said to me. And so uh, there's one instance of the, the meal and the significance of that flower. In First Kings 17, we read of a widow who had a little handful of meal, of flour in a barrel, and God blessed it when she entrusted it to the Lord. It wasn't that the flower reproduced itself. She entrusted it. She entrusted her oil to the Lord. And her barrel never ran dry after that. 
And I believe in our text, we may see this meal, this flour, as the powerful word of God that takes away the death that is in the bad doctrine. And it makes the stew good for the people to eat. It says in verse 41, and he cast it into the pot, the meal, the flour. Otherwise, the sons of the prophets would have gone on their way trying to get the bad taste out of their mouth and still not knowing why the stew was bad. Perhaps they would have just said, well, you know what, I'm just not going to eat stew anymore. And that's the response from some people who have had a bad experience in church. They've been fed poisonous stew. They know there's something wrong. They at least have the discernment that the sons of the prophets did. Oh, there's death in the pot. This isn't working out. This doesn't sound right. This is contradictory. It changes from Sunday to Sunday. There are some people in my life whom I love dearly and who have been hurt deeply in church over the years and decades. And for some of them, their response was just to stay out of church altogether, to stop eating the stew. But that's not the right way. Elisha didn't tell the sons of the prophets when they were gagging and saying there's death in the pot. He didn't say, well, I guess you guys just aren't cut out for stew. If you can't handle our standards around here, you better leave the church. Brother, you ever heard that? I sure have. No, he cast the meal into the pot. And when he did that, he knew, he knew the stew was okay. So much so that he said, pour out for the people to eat. A pot that had been poisonous now had the flour in it. What was the difference if we're considering this pot as a pot of doctrine? The difference was that this flour, this meal, was empowered by God. It was his word. Now, you may say, well, I came away with a different object lesson from this, and that's fine. That's okay. But this was the one that stood out to me. And then back in the text, he said at the end of verse 41, and there was no harm in the pot. Elisha had that much confidence in the power of God to use that meal to detoxify, to offset all that was bad in that pot that he said, pour out for the people that they may eat. At my house, at the houses I've lived in, and since I've been married, nobody has ever gotten food poisoning from a meal that we made. Never. Not my kids, my wife, my extended family, friends. And the reason for that is that we buy good food. We don't let it spoil. If we do, we throw it away. We prepare it correctly, and we serve it under sanitary conditions. And after every meal we have served, we would have been able to say there was no harm in the pot. As we sit around in fellowship with our family or friends and observe that none of them get sick, none of them stop in the middle of the meal and say there's death in the pot, in fact, I may start saying that at restaurants if the waitress asks how my food was. Ma'am, there was no death in the pot. There was no harm in the pot. And see how she takes that. Every time 
we witness that God's Word is enough to bring someone from confusion to understanding, from darkness to light, from fear to faith, then we're able to testify there was no harm in the pot. And just like the meals we've served at our house, the result of teaching pure doctrine from God's Word has always been this, there was no harm in the pot. Barring the human frailty of preaching, that is, we have distractions and worries and stresses and things in our minds too when we teach, and we ask God to take those away, to set them aside so our minds are clear to teach, but we're flesh and blood. And barring those things that sometimes slip out or sound confusing, when we're teaching the doctrine, the pure doctrine of God's Word, and you leave hearing it, we can say what they heard from God's Word is not going to hurt them. It's going to help them. We have confidence in that. Whatever your problem in life is after you leave here, whatever happens to you, it won't be because we preach God's Word to you. You can't say, well, the reason... Uh, that that car ran over my foot out there on the street after church is because Brother Shepherd preached bad doctrine from the Bible. There is no bad doctrine from the Bible. The bad doctrine comes from what man says about the Bible that's not true. Now let's look at verse 42. So chew on that. Verse 42, And there came a man from Baal Shalisha, I almost sounded like the man on the Strong's Concordance playback whenever I studied online. I'll, I'll hit the little microphone button and have him say it for me. And I almost sounded as good as he did right there, but uh, I've got a lot of practice. Baal Shalisha. And there came a man from Baal Shalisha and brought the man of God bread of the first fruits, 20 loaves of barley and full ears of corn in the husk thereof. And he said, give unto the people that they may eat. Now, Baal Shalisha was most likely a town in the land of Ephraim, one of the lots of land given to the tribes of the children of Israel in Joshua's day. In fact, in 1 Samuel chapter 9, verse 4, 1 Samuel 9, verse 4, the first part of that verse says, And he passed through Ephraim, Mount Ephraim and passed through the land of Shalisha. So you have two words here, Baal, or Baal as we say, and Shalisha. Baal is Lord, and Shalisha is third or thrice great. So the words together mean thrice great Lord, if you were interested in that. Now notice this man didn't just bring barley and corn. He brought bread of the first fruits. He didn't just gather up the gleanings of the barley or the corn from the field and say, well, I have some extra here. I think I'll take that to the man of God. He brought of the first fruits, and this is key. It wasn't left over. It wasn't old, but it was first fruit. In Deuteronomy chapter 18 and verse 4, Deuteronomy 18, 4, God gave the command to bring the first fruits to the priests. It says, the first fruit also of thy corn of thy wine and of thine oil, and the first of the fleece of thy sheep shalt thou give him. So the bringing of the first fruit to the man of God, Elisha, even though as far as I can tell, he wasn't a Levite. His, where he came from is somewhat mysterious. He was 
We were given his father's name and where he was from, but not the tribe he was from. But in either case, in bringing this first fruit to Elisha, this man was bringing his first fruit to the man of God. And that's who the, the priest represented in the Old Testament as well. And this man said, give to the people. Not knowing how many people, we must assume it was to all the people in Gilgal where Elisha was at this time, and maybe it was to a smaller group, I don't know. But unlike the man who brought the wild gourds for the stew, this man brought the first fruits of his barley and corn. You hope you see a difference here. These aren't just two stories that happen to be in the same place in the Bible. There's a connection we can make with them. This man knew the difference between barley and corn and wild gourds. And by his next statement, he was certain there would be no harm in the pot when these first fruits were being fed to the people. He said, give to the people that they may eat. Now, you wouldn't do that if you knew that what you were going to give the people was harmful to them. Give unto the people that they may eat. And Elisha also says this. He was confident that the food the man brought was good for the people to eat. Now look in verse 43. And his servitor said, now we don't say servitor, it's it's minister or servant, so it's a servant. His servitor said, what? Should I set this before a hundred men? He said again, give the people that they may eat. For thus saith the Lord, they shall eat and shall leave thereof. Look at that question. What? Should I set this before a hundred men? Another translation reads this way. How can I set this before a hundred men? You see, there were only 20 loaves of barley and some full ears of corn. We don't know how many. In other words, Elisha, How are you going to feed a hundred men with this little bit of food? Does that sound familiar? Yes, it does. I'm going to read to you a passage from Matthew chapter 14, verses 13 through 21. When Jesus heard of it, he departed thence by ship into a desert place apart. And when the people had heard thereof, they followed him on foot out of the cities. And Jesus went forth and saw a great multitude and was moved with compassion toward them, and he healed their sick. And when it was evening, his disciples came to him, saying, This is a desert place, and the time is now past. Send the multitude away, that they may go into the villages and buy themselves victuals. But Jesus said unto them, They need not depart. Give ye them to eat. What was the, what did Elisha say here? Give them to eat. And they say unto him, We have here but five loaves and two fishes. And what did this servitor say? We have 20, basically we have 20 loaves of barley and a little bit of corn. He said, Bring them hither to me. And he commanded the multitude to sit down on the grass. And he took the five loaves and the two fishes. And looking up to heaven, he blessed and brake and gave the loaves to his disciples and the disciples to the multitude. And they did all eat and were filled, and they took up of the fragments that remained twelve baskets full. And they that had eaten were about five thousand men besides women and children. 
When the disciples said, we have here but five loaves and two fishes, they were expressing the same doubt as this servant was. When he said, what, should I set this before a hundred men? But in the New Testament passage from Matthew, there were way more than a hundred men. There were 5,000 men plus the women and children. And there was less bread than in the Second Kings passage that we're looking at, just five loaves instead of 20. And you know the disciples knew these verses were studying because these were from the writings of the prophets. And yet they still had their doubts about Jesus' ability to feed so many with so little. That's why we preach God's word over and over and over again. Covering the same doctrines with you repeatedly, week after week. Because like the disciples in Jesus' day who knew that God had the power to multiply this food to feed many, we need to be constantly reminded of what God has done. So we will believe what he can do and that he will do it. What if we taught you, let's say you walked into this church and the first time you were here, we taught you that salvation comes only through faith in what Jesus did on the cross. And we taught it just that one time. We never said another word about it. And after that, you hear from the world and its false teachers and you read stuff on Facebook and maybe you get stuff in the mail or listen to the radio. And all of those people are saying that there's another way to be saved. Or that everyone's going to be saved regardless of their religious beliefs. And you hear that over and over and over again. If that were the case, then you might easily believe that there is a way to be saved other than what God's Word says. Because you just heard us say it one time, and you've heard all these others say differently. And the flesh appeals to popularity. The flesh loves to hear what the majority says. Go with the flow. So the disciples, even though they knew what God's Word said, even though they knew, I would assume... This story we're reading, they had to be reminded by Jesus that with God, all things are possible. Now, what was the response of Elisha to his servant? He said again, give the people that they may eat. And this is what Jesus told the disciples in Matthew 14, the passage I just read you. But Jesus said it before they expressed their doubts. He had already read their hearts. He knew by the look on their faces as they probably as they looked at that small amount of food and looked at all those people, they probably did this. He already knew what they were thinking. How are you going to do this one, Lord? And they suggested to him that the people leave and go into town and get their own food. And not only did Elisha say, here, give the people that they may eat, but number two, for thus saith the Lord, they shall eat and shall leave thereof. Not only would they eat, but they would have leftovers. What happened after the people were filled with the bread and the fish in Matthew 14? It says they took up of the fragments that remain 12 baskets full. And this is the nature of God's giving. It is super abundant. It's more than we could ask for. A hungry people would love to fill their stomachs but they would also be glad just to get a little bit of food to keep from starving. 
And Jesus gave the people so much that they, not only were they full, but they had leftovers. And Elisha told the servant the result would be the same. Here, they shall leave thereof. And I'll leave you with a scripture, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20, because this is the greater principle we learn here about God's grace. Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly, that's just what we witnessed, isn't it? Exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us. And that's the spiritual lesson God teaches us when he feeds so many with so little. He's teaching us about grace. We'll pick up with verse 44, Lord willing, next time. All right. Any questions? Yes, sir, brother. That's right. For those of you online who weren't able to hear, Brother Fulton commented that that meal offering was made every day in the Old Testament and that that represented the bread of life, Jesus, the one who gave life to those who were dead. And so this meal represents him. And what did the Bible say about him? He was the word that became flesh and dwelt among us. Amen. All right, well, let's be dismissed in prayer. Thank you, brother. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the good attention of the people. Thank you that your spirit is our teacher and that you take your truth, transmit them to our hearts, help us to truly understand, and then you give us the ability to live by faith, believing what your word says is best for us. And in that, there is no harm in the pot. And now, Lord, as we go into our next hour, I pray our attention would be upon your word. We would seek to lift up Jesus Christ high and as uh, the only Lord and Savior and preach him to this world that is lost and dying and full of false professors of religion. And, Lord, just bind the devil that he would not hinder what we do here today. In Jesus' name, amen.